Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Julie Subrin. Today, a Jewish novelist's perspective on Jesus. In 2006, British author Naomi Alderman made waves with her debut novel, which was titled Disobedience. There, she told the story of Renit Krushka, a lapsed Orthodox Jew who returns to London when her estranged father, a revered rabbi, dies. The novel portrays adulterous and lesbian love affairs, among other transgressions, and it offended some in the Orthodox community, which, it should be mentioned, is where Alderman grew up. It also earned Alderman the UK's Orange Prize for new writers. She has a new novel out, it's her third, in which she takes on another set of orthodoxies. The book is called The Liar's Gospel. It tells the story of the life and death of Jesus from four different perspectives. Each of the four characters is drawn from the New Testament, but like Jesus himself, they are Jews and are steeped in the rituals and beliefs of their time. It is a provocative and fascinating retelling of one of the foundational narratives of Western culture. Naomi Alderman is now on book tour in the U.S., and we are delighted to have her in the studio with us. Naomi Alderman, welcome to Vox Tablet. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Naomi, when we spoke to you on this podcast about six years ago about disobedience, the conversation that we had was very much about Orthodox Jews in the U.K. here, (laughs) um, about violating taboos in that community. How did you get from there to Jesus or Yehoshua to use his Hebrew name as you do in your novel? I do. They all have their Hebrew names in the novel, which is... In a way, that's an orthodoxy, right? That's a different kind of reclaiming an orthodoxy, which is to say um, that that there's an orthodox Jewish view of this world, or indeed like a Jewish history view of that world. And uh, you don't necessarily see that in the New Testament. So what have I been doing for the past six years? Well, I gave up being an orthodox Jew after Disobedience was published. Uh, I think I had been on quite a long journey with that. Um, But somehow publishing the novel enabled me, as it were, to leave the frumkite, the orthodoxy, on the shelf and just go, I've done my best with it. And now it's time to just let it go. So this novel, The Liar's Gospel, I had had in mind for many years, probably for about 20 years, since I was studying Hebrew when I was uh, 16, 17, 18, at the same time as doing Latin in my non-Jewish school which gives you a very interesting perspective on the time because obviously there's the Christian perspective in which somehow both the Romans and the Jews are the bad guys. Uh, And if you're studying ancient Hebrew and ancient Latin, you go, well, neither of these peoples would have seen themselves as the bad guys. I love that stuff. Mm -hmm. I love that idea that we, we have been taught to look at the world in a particular way. And if you just take a step to the side, if you just look through the eyes of a different character, then you will find some completely new way of looking at the same thing. I think it's it's really that sort of idea is what drives me to write that Mm -hmm. thought of just finding if there's something that everybody seems to agree on, it's probable that we're ignoring some really important perspectives. So I remember thinking about it when I was a teenager. I remember saying to my Hebrew teacher, somebody should write a novel about like Jesus, but from the Jewish perspective. And my Hebrew teacher said, no, 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 nobody should do that. It would be terrible for the Jews. And in a way, it is strange that probably a novel like this couldn't even have been published in 1960. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it's particularly anti-Christian. 
I, I don't think so. I think it leaves room for a believing Christian to have their interpretation of what happened. And, and I don't set out to really trample on that. And, and, and I don't set out to offend anybody in particular. Um, so I've taken four perspectives in this novel. As you say, there's uh, Mary Miriam, who's his mother. Uh, there's Judas Yehuda, who is the the follower who ends up betraying him. There's Caiaphas, who was the high priest of the temple at the time, and uh, Barabbas, or Balavo, the son of the father. He's the, he's the murderer who's released when Jesus is crucified, and Pilate says to the people, which do you want? And they say, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Uh, so once I had a look at these characters, some of the things that are said about them in the New Testament, some of the things get, took, on, took on a really a new truth, and some of them immediately fell away. So the uh, Caiaphas, who, who's this high priest, in the New Testament, they're portrayed as these Pharisees. I don't know if you remember in, in um, J- uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, there's the two high priests with their big black hats and one of them's a bass and one of them's a falsetto and they're just evil. Well, nobody's just evil. Right. This is the nature of humanity. So again, when you go and look at Caiaphas, and he thinks he's perfectly justified in... In the end, regretfully having to give Jesus up to the Romans, and I basically agree with him. In order to keep the peace. In order to keep the peace. So who is the hero in this story and who is the villain? To be fair, I don't think I have really picked a villain apart from the fact that the Romans were awful. And because we live in a Western civilization that sort of admires Rome, we tend to ignore how absolutely awful it was to be under occupation by Rome. Right. So in your telling, the life and the deeds and the death of Yehoshua are inseparable from the violent context of Roman occupation and Jewish rebellion. So why? Why did you feel like you couldn't tell this story without that context? I wanted, first of all, to get into the story in a historical way, to really understand what the true history was. I was completely uninterested in faith and doctrine and things that have been invented and accreted subsequently. So I went and read a lot of the history that that survives. We have great writers like um, Josephus is is our main source for the period. And having read it, I became so fascinated by it that I just thought, well, I have to put this stuff into the novel because once you understand it, the whole of the context seems different. How? So once you start to look at what happened to Jesus in the historical context, you really start to understand how it could happen without anyone having been a pantomime villain. So the, the stories in, in, in the novel take him from, obviously, Mary has his childhood and Judas has his ministry and then the betrayal. Caiaphas has the trial and Barabbas has the, the moments of execution. Um, and there's that crucial thought about why would somebody betray him? Having been betrayed, why would they hand him over to the Romans? The Romans having taken him, why would he be executed? And once you understand the nature of that occupation, this all becomes very clear because actually he wasn't a big deal at the time. I'm sorry if that comes as a shock to anyone. I mean, he's really not very well recorded amongst Roman or Jewish literature of the period, which he would have been if he had been a massive deal. Um, But it's absolutely forbidden under Rome to claim to be the true king. Because the Romans have put their king in power. So once you're saying, I'm the true king, then the Romans are interested because 
the Jews have been rebelling and rebelling and rebelling, unlike any other group that Rome had taken over, uh, where usually they would just put their own statues in the temple with the statues of whoever they happened to worship and say, well, our God is, is our Emperor Augustus, who's also our king, and worship him. And, and people, after they had you know, cleaned up their dead and and repaired their burned houses would go, okay, all right, all right. You want us to worship your God, we'll worship your God too. The Jews were not up for this. And there were constant, really bloody massacres, rebellions leading to massacres, rioting. In the end, as we probably all know, this is not going to come as a surprise to anyone, the Romans ended up destroying Jerusalem, which is very unusual for them. They, they they are not in the business. They're not Nazis, right? We don't conflate the Roman and the Nazis. They are not in the business of going around trying to kill all Jews or, or in fact, all of anyone, actually. They're a business operation. They want to go out like a franchise, you know. Don't who, make our job hard, okay, everybody? Exactly. Let's work together. Do you know who they are? They're the mafia. I mean, and that Italian connection, I think, is still there. That that is how they operate. Um, in fact, there's a great. Have you have you seen The Sopranos? Only bits and pieces. <laughs> I didn't really want to go public with that, but anyway. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, so in the first or second episode, there's uh, Tony Sopranos dealing with some Jews, and at some point he has to beat up somebody Jewish, and. Um, the Jewish guy says, you know, we Jews have been around for 2,000 years, 3,000 years. You know, we have an ancient culture. What are you? Where have you come from? And, and, and Tony Soprano looks at him and goes, we're the Romans. Except, you know, it's James Gandolfini and his great accent and not in the British accent. Uh, but, yeah, I think, I think that's exactly how to understand them. They go around exactly like that going, listen, it's a nice city you have here. Would be a shame if anything were to happen to it. Um, so destroying Jerusalem is ridiculous for them because then they've destroyed value that's not what they want to do they don't want to melt all the gold into the ground by burning the place they don't want to kill all the people that they could helpfully take as slaves they don't want to kill the women who they could take you know they this, this is not what they're and they, and they don't want to destroy and burn things that they could the fields that, that they could have people selling crops from and, and making wine but the jews in the end just rebel so consistently that they have to send a message just like the mafia so within that context and knowing that i suppose hindsight is twenty twenty. so me looking back through this knowing that what ends up happening is the temple ends up being destroyed so then well the high priests have quite a good reason to uh want to to feel like working with the romans is the best idea well, so there's this accommodationist view, in a sense, of keeping the peace. Then you have Yehoshua, who is saying, love thy enemy. Mm. But his is not a view of keeping the peace, per se, right? Yeah, well, it's quite tricky to work out what Yehoshua or Jesus' view would have been. He says very different things at different points. So uh, he says this, love your enemy, which is a really a very radical doctrine. It uh, doesn't say you shouldn't have enemies. This was pointed out to me by a... Uh, Canon Giles Fraser, a very interesting uh, churchman in 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 the UK, um, doesn't say you shouldn't have enemies, but love them. In another place, Jesus says, "I come not to bring peace, but the sword." Hmm. So I I don't think we can know from the Gospels with certainty. I've tried in the novel to reflect some of those ambiguities. 
the novel is full of these incredible details of that era and of just a one character stands out, a completely secondary or tertiary character, the baker who's in the market, um, oh. who has a boil on the back of his neck and is about to be slain by Barabo. And, mm-hmm. um, but he's just like a brief flash character who's vivid or just the scene of Mary or Miriam puncturing the matzah with this wooden stick to prepare for Passover. And I'm just curious how, in immersing yourself in this time, in this era, in the novel, basically, what were you, <laughs> how are you living in contemporary life? I mean, did you do anything particular to get yourself in that state? I did do some stuff. Um, a newspaper has reported, and I'm going to try and get them to correct this, that uh, I ate only the seven biblical foods the whole time that I was writing the novel. This is not true. What are the seven biblical foods? Well, there's a little song. It goes, Eretz chita otena. And it's, there's, uh, so it's wheat and barley and uh, grapes and dates. Uh, there's, sorry, there's a song. And, and unless I sing the song, I can't remember it. Um Oh, pomegranates uh, and uh, olives and olive oil and uh, honey. These are the sort of, you know, the, the sort of symbolic foods of Israel. But I did not spend the whole time writing the novel eating only the seven biblical foods. I did spend a couple of weeks experimenting with eating mostly foods that you could have got at the time, just to have a sense of that. Um which was really quite interesting. It was very helpful to realize what a lamb-based culture it was, a sheep-based culture. Uh, and then you suddenly see, once you see that the major meat that is going to be around and the major thing that you're producing your clothes from are sheep and everybody has some sheep, then it makes perfect sense that there are so many metaphors about sheep and the lamb of God and we're the flock of God and God is our shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, it's, it's because they're surrounded by sheep. We might, if it were being written today, we would probably have, you know, the Lord is my hedge fund manager <laughs> <laughs> um, or my taxi driver or, you know. Um, so I guess it's very helpful to start thinking about that stuff because then you realize that it's not that the people are different to us. People haven't really changed. And when you read the Old Testament, you can still see the same human emotions and human motivations playing out that we see playing out today. We really haven't changed that much. Um, I think also it's quite helpful in a, in a way to have grown up really religious because you're absolutely encouraged to envision a future in which the temple will be rebuilt. And that's what you're supposed to to want to happen. Um, there's there's that uh, there's that phrase um, renew our days as of old as in bring us back to those old times. I mean I remember it was quite a big deal for me because I had grown up saying this like at the end of every day's prayers you say and rebuild the temple soon and in our days. And then when I worked out that if they rebuilt the temple it would go like this: and there would be an inner courtyard for the Cohens, the priests. And then an outer courtyard for the men, and then a much more outer courtyard for the women. And I'm like, oh right, this thing that I'm praying for, that I wouldn't be allowed in there. I would be hanging around in the outer women's courtyard. I'm, I, I don't get to go and, you know, hang out where all the cool stuff is going on. So yeah, that's a strange thing. But I think it's helpful to have been encouraged as a child to like really hope that that's going to happen. And you went through that process of envisioning it on mm. in some level. If you visioned that courtyard, that means that you already at some point took the imaginary leap to this time yeah. and place. It, it's interesting because you're right. I'm, I don't think that maybe all Orthodox Jewish children do that. But maybe that was 
I think, if I may confess, a psychological flaw. I think I'm incapable of letting things lie. I want to think it all the way through, right to the end. It's a problem in relationships. You know, <laughs> I can't just go, oh, well, we don't need to talk about that. No, if there's something, I just really want to push it all the way, see what's there. So if you say to me, well, we're praying for the temple to be rebuilt, then, yeah, I do want to think it all through and go, okay, so what's exactly that going to be like? Right. You know? um, I want to ask, how have religious Christians responded to the novel? Okay, so far, amongst let's say intellectual or liberal Christians reaction has been superb. People have loved it. And um, I had I had a the, the head of, of one of the major sort of theological libraries in the UK say to me that was he thought it was the most accurate representation he'd ever seen of Jesus. Um, and this was this was wonderful. And people, you know, talk about how I have brought him to life. I've had some anti-Semitic email. Um, of what nature? How dare you venture into our territory or... I had a great one that started that, that that had something in it like, "Haven't the Jews persecuted the Christians enough?" I was like, "Yeah, that's the way around. It's gone. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely been the history of Western civilization: Jews consistently persecuting Christians." Um, yeah, there's been a kind of a Jews control the media, bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. You're using this to further your Jewish agenda etc etc I, I had a couple of those and then i took my email address off my website and so now my, the email address on there is my agents and maybe she's been getting them i mean she probably has but you know she doesn't send them to me i don't want to know uh so far i haven't had anything threatening happen and my view is people have a right to be as offended as they want um we're just a little over a week from passover now uh and soon after easter and it's this time, which is so relevant, of course, to your novel. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, I, I have been in a Greek village twice for Easter, visiting very good friends of mine, and found it very scary. There was like this fervor. I went to church mm. services, this fervor and this feeling that I really haven't had it at, pretty much at other times, um, where I really did not want someone to know that I was Jewish. Yeah. Um, how, based on your telling and your thought, is there a way to have a view of these two holidays that does not set us at each other or that we could just rethink this whole thing that I couldn't relinquish my <laughs> fear of this of Easter? I love that question so much. I think that is the question I've been asked I love the most. Thank you for that. One thing I would say is it has been tremendously helpful to me to write this book because before I wrote it, I was frightened of Christianity for very obvious reasons. There is a history of persecution and murder. Most Jewish people who have been murdered throughout history have been murdered because they were Jewish, um, and most of those by Christians. So once you sort of accept that, then you can go, all right, well, yeah, there's a reason. There are reasons that we feel this way. There are reasons particularly to feel that way at Passover. Passover was traditionally a time when, um, particularly in Eastern Europe, the priests would whip up their congregations, there would be pogroms. I have a theory that the reason that Jews get so freaked out at Passover is not because of the cleaning, which after all is not that onerous, but or because they're going to host a big meal, which, you know, yeah, but it's fine. But it's because only three or four generations ago, our great-great-grandmothers were in actual fear of their lives. And Passover, more than any other time of year, really holds memory. The same old chinaware comes out, the same old songs, the same old rituals, the same old foods. 
and and you really have a feeling that each Passover is more like other Passovers than it is like the day that came before it or the day that comes after it. So I think probably at some point our great-grandmothers saw their mothers in absolute terror during this Passover preparation, knowing that somebody would probably get killed. And the terror continues even when the threat is removed. So I think that's part of what's going on. So to the question of how we can how we can think about Christianity, Jesus is a really good place to start. Uh, he is the line that divides us, but the dividing line is always the one thing that the two sides have in common. And this is really where I started with this book. I can highly recommend also a book by uh, Professor Amy Jill Levine called The Misunderstood Jew. She talks about this, that Jesus is this liminal figure who... When we see the Jewishness in him, then we feel much more warmly towards it. Now, I think the trouble is we feel like we're betraying something if we feel warmly towards Christianity. We feel like we're betraying those people three or four generations ago who were being murdered. But in fact, if we continue with this mentality that persecution can come back at any moment, really we're, just, we're doing it to ourselves you know, at this stage, it's going on because we're doing it to ourselves in our own minds. Nobody was going to hurt you in Greece, right? I mean, you know that. Mm -hmm. But the way that we think about the situation makes us experience it fearfully. Um, so it has been tremendously powerful for me to have written the book, to have really gone in and taken a a long look at Jesus, to have held him in my hand, turned him around, really read and thought about all the things that he said, come out at the end with respect for some things, annoyance about other things, there he is, a human being. And now when I go to some Christian event, I see the Jewishness in it. And it's beautiful. And I see it as people finding something beautiful in Judaism and finding a way to interact with it that also worked within the Roman Empire and worked within certain things from paganism that they wanted to keep. And I feel, I think the word is compassionate. I think I feel compassionate towards the people who early on made those decisions to say, well, I don't think we can really expect people to keep all these kosher food laws. But, you know, and, 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 and people would like to still have, like, someone to pray to that's not big God because, you know, we, and may, maybe we can have these sort of saints, maybe we can do that. Um, I realise that's a gross oversimplification <laughs> of Christian history and some Christians may, may listen and hate me for it. But as a Jew, I yeah, there was a, there was a service for the 10th anniversary of, um, 9-11. In fact, I, I was living in New York during 9-11, so this has always been an important anniversary for me. And it's maybe less, it's less of a deal in the UK, but there was a service in some, at St. Paul's Cathedral, which is the large, the, you know, the, 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 the huge cathedral in London. And this was during the time that I was writing this novel. And I, I thought, well, I want to do something. So I went along to this service at St. Paul's and that was the first point that I saw that writing the book had changed my my feeling about Christianity. And instead of feeling, oh, they stole this from us, oh, I just thought, oh, this is beautiful. Look at this. I can come here in Britain where there was never a substantive like Jewish settlement 2,000 years ago. I can come to the biggest religious building in the country and there are people saying psalms from my heritage. Mm -hmm. 
And it, yeah, well, I, I was crying at the whole, throughout the whole thing anyway, but that also made me cry. Naomi Alderman, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Naomi Alderman's latest novel is called The Liar's Gospel. It's just out from Little Brown and Company. Now, if this conversation has left you wanting to read the book, Tablet is giving away 10 copies, and you could be one of the lucky winners. Just go to tabletmag.com slash sweepstakes to enter. While you're there, let us know what you thought of today's conversation. Post a comment on the site. It's tabletmag.com. I'm Julie Subrin. Thank you so much for listening, and have a good Passover. Passover. 